0: On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Stephen Sachs worked 30 years in the fashion industry and created a brand that was being sold in over 30 countries, generating over 30 million pounds a year in revenue before being acquired. His furniture business racked up millions of pounds in debt, and he had no idea how to dig his way out. Wanting to save others from experiencing what he went through, he founded Funding Nav that helps business owners who have more ambition than cash. I love that line. To date... They have provided in excess of 100 million pounds for hundreds of businesses. He's also the author of two books, Reboot Your Business and The Intelligent Investor's Handbook. His latest venture is a networking business called Fuck Up Nights, where business owners learn the fuck ups of others. Tell you what, that that is such a valuable thing because it's so easy to talk about, you know, all the things we do well, but you know there's so much value in our screw ups our fuck ups our mess ups whatever you want to call them and uh, be- but before we get to all of that and the experiences you had in selling businesses and the uh, you know and, and and the funding that you do i want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up maybe 8 10 12 years old what did you want to be because i don't know being in the in the funding business might not have been it but you you tell me well funny enough i want to be a soldier
1: and i remember going to a sort of careers meeting at the school and I told them that and they said oh, no that's a ridiculous idea you, you should go into I think so you go to retail I think they said to me and I, I kind of did to be honest with you so <laughs> that was <kinda laughs> their advice so no, no, I didn't become a soldier and I did kind of go into a lot of retail orientated businesses.
0: I love it. I love it. One more question looking back and this could be something, you know, some small when you were young or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. What was the first deal of any, of any type that you, that you did, that you remember?
1: Well, I'm like a lifelong cyclist. I'm fascinated with cycling. And I used to take bicycles apart, put them back together again, and buy bits, make new bikes, sell them, do servicing for some of my pals. So yeah, it was sort of bike orientated. I think generally,
0: love it, love it. I used to do a lot of cycling, and I've started to get back into it. I, I I always loved it, and I did like these across state rides in the United States, like the Cycle Oregon and the Ragby Ride, which was the first big one. And there's done in Iowa every year. And I, how um, far is that?
1: How far is it to cycle across Iowa? Uh, like- so
0: if I remember right, I, one of them, I'm I th- I'm thinking Oregon might have been longer. So I think one of them was like 480 miles over a week. One was more like 420. Yeah. You know, so 60, 70 miles a day on average, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, it's a, it's a decent ride for for seven days and, you you know, you're camping out. So, yeah. But it's um, the Ragbri ride, which is the Register's Annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa, was the first one in the U.S. that did like this organized cross-state ride. And it's a huge, I mean, they have, I think when I did it, the last time I did it, it was like, it might've been 15, 20 years, 20 years ago, and that was the 25th anniversary. They had over 10,000 riders who signed up for the whole week. Ten to twelve thousand, and then they had another two or three thousand that would join like just for the day in various segments and they've got like they have bands playing and food things along the route and you know it was like it was an amazing you know amazing thing Oregon was, was a little less populated and you know we went over both ranges of cascade mountains and finished at the pacific ocean it was pretty yeah it's pretty wow. wild you know i always said for me cycling would always get my mind off everything else because i was either focusing on the beautiful scenery and the pace we were doing or I was focusing on the pain and either way I, yeah, I wasn't thinking about anything else, so it cleared my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm actually involved in a cycle, Man, we're cycling from London to Sydney, Australia.
0: Oh, wow. Um, How long is that?
1: Well, as it happened, so it's, it's around about 12,000 miles, but we're doing it across 25 years. So
0: uh.
1: we, we started this year, we, we went London to Paris, and next year we're doing Paris to Geneva. And we do, each year we do a stage, and it's all fat business founders Yep. And uh, we're raising money for orphans in Africa. But, the, uh, you know, obviously the reason we're doing it primarily is uh, because it's kind of so- something to do. So it's it's for me, I mean, I started when I was 57, as I'm still 57, and I'm aiming to finish when I'm 82. So I think it's it's kind of really good. It's kind of like it's a lifelong goal of remaining Relatively fit throughout that period, so it'd be interesting to see how many of us actually get to the end and finish that. It's sort of like you know, and how many of us are going to be in sort of wheelchairs at the end, and sort of like, or not there at all, I guess.
0: I love the concept and the goal, though. Like you know, some of the—I I mean, I just love that a 25-year commitment or goal at 57. That's that's phenomenal. All right, so let's let's get into you know, give people a little more of what what you do now on the funding side, and then I, and then I do want to go back. And talk about your prior businesses and the experience of going through a sale, and then also you know the comment in your bio about maybe what sounds like a, a challenge that inspired you to get into this business. But but give but give people a little more about exactly what you do in terms of funding, who you serve, and you know what types of deals you do.
1: I'll just give you the pitch. Which is a minute, which is that we, we you've, you've said it already that we help businesses that have more ambition than cash, but more specifically, we do that in five different ways. We advise and consult on funding strategies, we offer access to free sources of capital, which includes things like tax credits and grant funding. We help businesses to raise debt, which is often venture debt nowadays rather than asset based lending. Yeah, I help businesses to sell equity through the sale of shares to angels, high net worth VCs, or family offices. And we're heavily involved in mergers and acquisitions. So the job essentially is to be very social in the whole business growth area. And in London, and I think in, in most sort of metropolitan cities nowadays, but in London especially, it's very easy. It, it's a kind of thriving business growth area. There's a lot going on generally in service businesses rather than in sort of manufacturing or product businesses. And some of those businesses for one reason or other either they're going through growth stage there's something going on around an acquisition or something like that they need a turnaround you know they they're, they're declining in some way the cash being a bottleneck is is, a, is a, obviously a common issue in business and and i think that it is helpful for me to empathize with business owners going through those issues in that i've i'm very experienced in operating businesses and i know what it is to need to make payroll you know sort of later in the month and to wonder how the hell you're going to do that and where, where that money is going to actually come from sure. i think a lot of the people that are operating in this area are either ex-bank managers or accountants and i think that the fact i'm neither of those things is is a kind of like a, a skill so I, I i was intending to expand this business through franchising and i actually sold about over over the lockdown over the pandemic I saw about 18 franchises and it hasn't been very successful to be honest with you whilst for me it's proven to be a really really great business I, I, the business kind of has no value to anybody else for some reason and I, I think that in order for something to be successfully franchised you know it, it needs to be a very cookie cutter and it's got to be a, a, a sort of definite playbook of how a yes. business works but what what I'm doing is it's like problem solving, and that's quite difficult, you know. So, looking for deals, actioning deals is is a skill I've I've worked out is is not is not a common skill, and it's difficult to find people that that can do that. So, actually, I've, I've recently changed the business model, and this is, this is all about deals. I've actually acquired, I've started acquiring businesses. Or acquiring stakes in business, and the most recent business that I business that I acquired is a property based business based in the British Midlands, where we are letting it's, re, it's all around residential housing, and we've mm-hmm. got twenty units of like multi units, and now we're looking we're expanding that, and now we're looking to franchise that across the country in different places. So I think that, yeah, the model now is funding that is really great for me, and finding businesses, helping businesses in the ways that I described, and then some acquiring some of those businesses, a stake in some of those businesses, and then growing those and, and growing capital value through that. So yeah, that, that's kind of a learning which I've had sort of recently around, around this.
0: It's interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, it, yeah, you're right. I mean, if you look at the most successful franchises, right They're, I mean, the, they're the ones that are in businesses and it's not just, I mean, obviously the, like the fast food franchises or, you know, you think about those, but even, even when you get into more service-based businesses, yeah, it needs to be an easily repeatable, right. You know, learnable process because by nature, and this is not any kind of dig or, or, you know, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but people who buy franchises are different people than than people who start business from nothing. And, you know, I've always said, mean, even in my business, I mean, you know, and, and a lot of my clients as well, the hardest, you phrase it a different way. I look at it as people who who are good at strategy, right? Strategic, you know, figuring like out all the pieces and helping people put something together, a uh, few and far between. And, and, and it's tough to create a repeatable process out of that, right? Because it is sort of like a... There's part science, but there's also sort of part art and this part just feel and this part just being able to listen to people and and I don't know, see the feel that it's hard to describe. It's hard to replicate, right?
1: Yeah, I mean I I recently read a book or I listened to a book actually on Audible. I think it's called Hundred Million Dollar Deal. And it's around a guy who works specifically in the gym business in the United States. And he, he has some gyms and he made those gyms really successful he then he sold the gyms and he wound up with no money the, the whole thing that the deal part didn't work for him and then he started to sell a service of growing the the, the the revenue and the profitability of gyms specifically in the united states and he was going around the country doing this and he he was making a lot of money and then he then he changed the service to from a, a sort of a done for you service to a done by you service and and he, and he seemed to be massively successful if you if you, if you read the book for, for sure he, he was or he is and I think that yeah that that niching makes it possible to to expand but if you're just saying you know I mean I I, I work for gyms I mean my deals I've done recently include businesses in cleaning asset management facilities management logistics clothing, sustainability, software, you know, it's, 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 across, it's across everything. It, it's, and, and, and the, that broadness makes it really, really, really difficult to, and, and, and the solutions I'm selling to them are not the one thing it's, it's, it, you know, it might be advice. I know. I mean, the, the biggest piece of advice, which I give to any business, in fact, the business, which I've just um, acquired is prices. It's just like, the. The number one thing which I see in businesses is businesses not charging enough yep. and petrified that an increase in price is going to make all the customers run away. Of course, right now, you know, everybody's having to increase their prices because across the world, we've got in sort of inflationary pressures that we haven't seen for years. So sure. maybe, now, maybe now everybody's kind of been forced to take that advice and it's kind of an easier thing to do. But certainly up until last year it was really really difficult to get
0: people to do that yeah listen even the ones that are raising it now the problem with them is that if they haven't raised it for some years and now they're just raising it they're probably just raising it maybe to barely keep up with inflation if if that right so they're not even they're still behind right i mean they they just won't fall maybe further behind because they're being forced into it but no i've seen that as well i mean i i've told i think i've told it on this podcast maybe a while ago but many years ago you know at a time we don't do any of this work anymore but when i was much earlier in my career and we were doing some residential real estate you know closings and things like that because i I evaluate everything from a business point of view. I run profitability analyses on everything, which is lawyers by the way, are notoriously horrible at doing that, you know, in general. So so the going rate, you know, in New York City for like a real estate closing was very low and and I, I realized I couldn't make money on that, not the way I wanted to do it with the kind of service that I wanted to provide. You know, yeah, if you want to create a a factory where you have a bunch of paralegals and the lawyer doesn't touch the file and you barely return the client's phone call and whatever, yeah, you can make money on that, right? It's like the the Walmart of of real estate closings or whatever you want to call it. It's not the way I practice though. So I just doubled my fees, literally doubled them. Like once I did that analysis and then kept pushing them up from there. And and listen, it wasn't the main part of my business, but I I didn't see any drop. And then I hired an attorney who had a a chunk of business that way. And she was very afraid. And, And I said, I said, I asked her the question, I said, if we double your fees, how much business do you think she, you know, I'd lose And her answer to me was, I don't know, 25, 30%. I said, I said, even if you're right, like, like you may not even That's lose right that, enough. but let's say you lost 30%, right? You're now making, you know, more money for Le- a lot less work right you know <laughs> because you know you lose thirty 30 but you're making double yeah, right so yeah. you know it's it's amazing and like even that math did cl- in her own you know numbers and by the way it turned out that she was only down if i remember right like 16 percent, you know from the year before and she was making double by the time we got done that year yeah mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's no, no it's, it's it's definitely great advice, and yeah, it, it's 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 the easiest fix, the easiest fix in any business. Increase your prices before you do anything else. Yeah,
0: all right, all right. So, so you 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 exit that business. You know, let's call it a decent deal, right? Yeah, yeah, and um. And now what what do you do next? Is the next business, the the other business described in the bio where where it sounds like there were some interesting lessons learned? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I started to, I was always interested in interiors and furnishings. And I had a, actually, so I did have a bed linen business in the middle of all that, which I also exited, I sold. And then I started to, I became interested in reproduction, mid-century furniture, like yeah. Eames, for example, and I started to get this stuff made in China, import it, and I was selling it through newspaper advertising, online, and yeah, it was it was pretty good because these, there was a good margin in these products. I, I didn't have to work hard on design because it was already kind of done for me. It was okay selling it from a legal perspective at the time. And everything was moving ahead, and suddenly the external situation changed in several different ways. In fact, two things happened, which really, really created a huge problem for me. The first thing was that the law changed, and the, it, it became very difficult, illegal actually. The design copyright after somebody's death extended which meant that an Eames chair, for example, suddenly became illegal to sell. Right. So I had to stop selling some of my best lines, and then I had to invest in design and try and create some of my own products. And it wasn't as good as the original sort of classic-type product. And then the thing that really caused me a problem was the idiotic vote to leave the EU, which happened here in 2016, That's Brexit. Good. And overnight, that had two impacts on the business. The first was that there was a lot of economic uncertainty. And as a result of it, the cost of acquisition of new customers increased by about 30%. And the value of the British pound declined by around about 20% against the US dollar, which was is obviously the international currency of exchange. So even when we you know we sell we, we used pounds over here and we're buying stuff in China, we're, we're all using US dollars. So uh, the, the product is priced to me in dollars. So my pounds are buying a lot less dollars than they were previously. So the combination of those two things meant that suddenly i i could I, I couldn't acquire customers profitably on the first sale so right. suddenly i'm i'm in a situation where i actually needed quite, i needed investment i never i need never needed investment in this business previously i was in a situation where i was able to fund it based on sales and at that time this business was not that attractive for investment because it was it, it's difficult getting a business funded, which is declined. Yeah. It, if you've got if you've got a hockey stick of upward looking sales and and you've kind of demonstrated that to an extent, and that's that's an that's not a difficult thing to fund. But if you've if you're heading south or have been heading south, it's difficult finding somebody to sort of like catch a, a falling knife. Yep. So, yeah, I, I kind of, the whole thing blew up, to be honest with you. I, I was kind of desperately looking for support. There was no support available. And in the end, we just ran out of money.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, obviously you had significant external factors that changed things. And, you know, it's interesting to think because obviously the business model was less profitable. Certainly, that right you said you couldn't acquire a new customer profitably. You know, the interesting part is, and I don't know, if you have a sense for this, and I guess you never would have really known unless you got funding to make a run at it. But just because that's true doesn't necessarily mean the business couldn't work. There are plenty of businesses that have loss leader on their first sale, right? But the lifetime value of the customer makes it well worthwhile. But it sounds like you didn't even get to test that philosophy because you couldn't have the funding to get to fund the, the losses on the first sale, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're selling a consumable like I don't know, printer cartridges, for example, or socks right. or food, then obviously, you know, people right. need to buy those things quite yeah. frequently. But on
0: furniture, and- it's tough because that's a lot. Long- yeah. Right. How often are they? Yeah, yeah. If I give you the first
1: one free, I don't care because you, I know you're going to keep coming back buying that from me repeatedly. Right. But if I'm something you a large piece of furniture. I might not see you back for four or five years. Right. So, you know, that site, you know, I've got. Either I need to have very deep pockets of I'm going to acquire you at a loss and hope that you're going to remember me in four or five years' time, which yep. you, you should probably won't do, because a lot, a, lot, a lot happens in that time. Or that you're going to recommend me to, to your friends and family. Right. Or I'm going to need to introduce other complementary product lines that you're going to buy more frequently right all of those things you need deep pockets for you know they're, they're, those are the areas that you and unfortunately I, I didn't have that money it was difficult even to, to operate the pro core proposition and yeah there, there, there were no investors out there looking for that deal at that time and there have been some huge failures actually of other but there, we had one recently in this country called made m-a-d-e that raised hundreds of millions of pounds on the stock market they had, they did an IPO and literally within a year the thing blew up in a very similar way and it, it, it was a much larger but not a dissimilar business to the one mm. that, that I was running and yeah in furniture you really need to be able to acquire a profit because there's literally no guarantee you're going to see that customer
0: yeah. back again yeah no I mean that, yeah that totally makes sense right You know, or or like you said, I mean, if if the furniture is part of an entire, let's say, lifestyle brand and you're able to invest in it at the level where you have all this other stuff, you can cross sell and upsell and whatever, but that that takes much more capital and ways to stay top of mind and, you know, creating other product lines. And yeah, I mean, it's a whole different thing.
1: Yeah. So huge learning.
0: Yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal-ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So you, as opposed to just hiding under a rock or even licking your wounds and coming out and starting another business somewhere else, you you dove headfirst into the thing that, I mean, it wasn't the thing that triggered the killing of your business, right? The triggers were Brexit and and the law changes or whatever, but ultimately the business died because of lack of capital, right? And you decided, hey, I'm going to go out of that experience, uh, try to help solve this for other folks. So talk about that journey, like uh, just even the decision to, you know, to, 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 know to do that.
1: Yeah, so what, I sat in a number of different meetings with funding facilitators, and yeah, this was at a time where I was, I suppose, increasingly desperate. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting across, you know, one side of a table negotiating, and I'm thinking more and more. I wish I was on your side of the table. You know, the, <laughs> I'm the guy. I'm the guy with all the problems here. You you seem to have some solutions. And at the end, yeah, at the end of this meeting, you know. Maybe I'll get a solution from this, but you're going to walk away with fees, yeah, and then you're going to get to sleep tonight. Yeah. And so I thought I, you know, and and that kind of stayed with me. and then when I had the opportunity, I, thought, I just need to do that. you know, that seems to me like a really, really great opportunity. and so, And so it proved to be. And I, I didn't know much about that industry, and I went out, I went out networking in London. Mm -hmm. in the in fact in fact exactly seven years ago january 2017 is when i first started this and i went out networking breakfast lunch dinner meeting business people finding out what other services people were offering and then kind of slotting myself into where i could see there to be a space building up all the various contacts that i had and gradually and quite quickly, actually, this gathered momentum. And in the first year, I made more money than I'd made in the previous year with a, with this bigger infrastructure. I had no structure. Literally, I was just walking around, you know, with a, with a, with a mobile phone and a computer. That's all I had.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And, you know, through the through my experience and my contacts, you know, I did pretty well in that first year. And I haven't looked back since. I, I've literally put no capital in, into the business and it's it's it continues to grow and provide me with a, with a kind of really, really great return. And the platform and the capital to now invest in other businesses. So yeah, I'm delighted.
0: That's great. I, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it reminds it's a totally different context, but something you said reminded me of a guest we had on not too long ago. Well, by the time this airs, it'll be a few months back. But on episode 208, we had Scott Carson on, who's in the real estate side in the US and and he buys mortgage notes and his, like, it reminded me when you said that when you were trying to raise that money and, and getting more and more desperate, you were looking at the other side of the table saying, wow, I think it's way better over there. It's Scott's line about, you know, what he says, what she loves is he says, you know, most people like the mortgage note business is a great business. Most people are just on the wrong end of it, right? They're on the end where they owe the money as opposed to, you know, on the end where they own the note. And he's a guy who buys up um uh, mortgage notes on distressed properties. And he actually tries to keep people in their homes, not throw them out, tries to get the loans performing again, but he gets them at a discount. Obviously he's got to foreclose. He does. But the point is, I don't want to go too far down that road, but it's, but it was an interesting thing. You know, just this perspective of saying, Hey, maybe the other side of this transaction of this deal is the better place to be, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I I think that it's you know when, when you have that kind of realization, you just kind of get driven internally to sort of and in you know with before long you find yourself on the other side of the table. It's kind of inevitable, I think.
0: Yeah. All right. So talk a little bit more specifically. I mean, you know. You mentioned it earlier, but on the different types of loans and, and the businesses. But let's talk about like size of loans, the size of businesses that you deal with. You know, uh, you gave some examples of the industries and the types of lending. But what about you know size of company, size of size of loans?
1: Uh, the stuff I've done recently is businesses from around about five million dollars in revenue up to $60, $70 dollars, and in terms of loan size from One or two million up to 20 25 million Mm -hmm. uh, type level, but but both loans and also investments.
0: Yeah, and is it all in the UK or is it outside the UK as well?
1: To date, 98% of our business has been UK based. Mm -hmm. Got it,
0: great. And and do you, you you mentioned something and I'm not sure what you were saying? So, do you actually Make personal investments as as well, or 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 are you do you participate in any of these syndicated deals, or and are they syndicated, or are you mainly matching people with appropriate investors and lenders?
1: Well, initially it was all about uh, broking deals and and advisory. Increasingly now, we we're starting. We've got we've got the capital and the wherewithal to start to make our own investments. Yep. And I see that as the future of the business. So, you know, we're we're in a state of flux, moving from advisory and broking towards becoming an investor in our own right. And as I said, we bought one business outright, which is this property business I mentioned to you. Yes. But we're looking at making other investments now. And so I I would imagine over the next few years, you know, we'll increasingly move to, to that direction of becoming an investor and lender.
0: Um, So that's, yeah, that's an interesting transition, right? Because it's different when you're connecting people with other people's capital, right? Making your own investment decisions is a very different thing. More risk, more reward, right? Certainly. So in terms of the, in this evolving business model and like somewhat early stage of it for you. What are you looking for in terms of the types of businesses you're looking to buy? What kind of due diligence are you doing? I'm not talking about it at a detail level, but like what's the criteria and and how you're vetting these businesses? Like, you know, how'd you come across and decide to do the property business deal?
1: The primary criteria is finding a motivated seller. Yep, Everything else follows, frankly, you know, that is like number one 10 is motivated seller and you have to understand the motivation and you know and it's not that the business is failing it's that the business is not a good fit for the entrepreneur or the founder any longer and they've got a different they want to move in a different direction for whatever reason and in a particular example of the business that we acquired there was a a founder he would sold a share to 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 another guy became his co-founder both of them wanted to emigrate. One of them had already moved to the Isle of Man. He's, he's, a, he's a YouTube influencer now, actually, which is a really interesting business model. And uh, the other one got other property businesses and uh, married a, a Cypriot girl and wanted to move to Cyprus. So you, you kind of, whilst you, you, you can operate this business remotely, it's, it's a very heavily operationally geared and you kind of need to be around. So we're not based in the city where it is, but we're within easy reach of the city. Yeah, and that kind of makes it work. So these guys were motivated by their, you know, they wanted to move away and do, do other things. So, yeah, it, it really is. I mean, top of the tree motivated seller.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, obviously, I think things change with, as you talk about size of businesses, right, and the level of efficiency of the markets, right. So when you're talking about you know the small and medium sized business space, there are all these opportunities where somebody's, I mean, you gave an example where two people's individual people's life decisions, right. Impacted their interest in continuing, you know, or not continuing to operate their business, you know, on on bigger companies, obviously that doesn't necessarily happen as directly related, but I think it creates great inefficiencies in a great way. Right. Like, you know, one of the things I talk about, talked about this podcast a lot. And just my philosophy is, you know, I have plenty of money invested in the stock market and a diversified portfolio that I, you know, dollar cost average and put money in and I expect it to grow over time, but I can't compete in that market, right? It's, it's way too efficient. There are too many, not, not to mention all the stuff that goes on, you know, beyond the scenes of the program trading systems and the computers that I'll never, you know, whatever, but in the small business to medium business realm, there are inefficiencies and the seller's motivation is I think the biggest opportunity to take advantage of that inefficiency, right? And when I say inefficiency, I mean, like where where you can get value, you know, in in purchasing the business, and it still feels like a good deal for the exiting sellers because again they have these other motivations, right?
1: Yeah, but I, I think that you're wrong to say that you can't see that in the stock market. I agree. The, the way that you're investing as a small guy, it, it's you can't do it there. But the the, the, the players in that market are the changes happening all the time, right? So businesses sure. are rationalizing their strategy. Somebody might say, you know, I, I'm kind of you know, we we don't want to be in this particular industry anymore. This is this becomes an unloved operating unit. We kind of want to exit this business. They're a motivated seller. Yeah, it's it's not. They're not one guy. This is a corporate deciding that they want to exit, and that's yes. the business that you want to be looking at. I think, oh, hang on a minute. There's there's some hidden value here. You know, I, I I could acquire this asset at a substantial discount. This is my opportunity. That's the market I want to be playing you know, in. Yeah. I guess I'm a value I'm a value investor, right? Yeah, so, you know, yeah, I, clearly. You know, I, I I was looking at a Tesla, for example, uh, like a year or so ago, and you know, when the, 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 it was like crazy times. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, some people are rushing in. Yeah, we need to buy more Tesla. We need to buy more Tesla. And you're thinking this is just not sustainable. You know, how can this yeah. guy be selling? You know, it just you know, it, it, it's almost impossible for this company that's you know to be worth more than Ford and General Motors and, and all these other companies put together. How's that even possible? And Volkswagen, and now you can see it's not possible, right? It's kind of you know suddenly this whole thing is is heading south in in a in a big way. I think fourteen percent yesterday. I, Alone. yeah So, yeah, for me, I, I'm kind of interested in. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested, I suppose, in, in, in an unloved asset. You know, so, and yeah. and and I think it happens all across the market, and you just need to be there in an imperfect market. Probably not in real estate, where I mean, it does happen, but it happens a lot less. But in in business sales, business owners may be experienced in building a business because obviously they, they built that experience over time. But a business sale happens very infrequently. So when they come to make a sale, even experienced business people are very inexperienced. And if they're heavily motivated, then there's great value in that market. You just need to be patient and be there looking all the time. and And you need to be able to recognize that value. And then you need to jump on it when you see it.
0: Well, yeah. And that's, and that's the other thing, the ability to, to jump on it, you know, because first of all, there's the ability to recognize it. Right. And that's a skill. That's a deal making skill, you know, to be able to even identify that it's available. And then there are more people that can potentially identify as available, but not necessarily be able to take advantage of it. Right, because they don't know they don't necessarily need their own capital, but they uh, they at least have to know how to raise capital, right, to be able to do a deal like that. So that combination of being able to identify the opportunities and being in a position through either one's own capital or access to capital to be able to take advantage of it is 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 you know really a key combination, right?
1: Yeah, 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 and it doesn't take long, you know, given that businesses sell on a kind of algorithm, which is generally earnings. Multiplied by some kind of multiple, the multiple being connected to the repeatability, the, the industry, you know, a number of different factors. You know, it, it, it's, you know, if you if you can increase the, the earnings a little bit, and then you can increase the multiple a little bit, you know, it, you know, in the example you gave previously, you know, where you're talking about increasing your prices, doubling your prices, and losing 25% of the business. You know, if I can increase the the rev the, the earnings by thirty percent and then I can increase the multiple yeah by fifty percent I can't quite work out the math but that's a, a large increase in value that uh, right. to, to the earnings of that business that, that I can actually sell that business for so yeah that that doesn't take much it's just a small incremental increase on both sides of that equation and then go out to the market and yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of value there and I think I think. I, I sincerely believe, actually, that's the quickest way to build to build wealth.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so, too. But I, I often talk about the mindset of a dealmaker on this podcast, and I talk about, you know, what it takes a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting because you made a comment, which I agree with, which is that it's the easiest way to build wealth. But the, the truth is only a tiny percentage of the population take advantage of it, right? So what is it in your mind that distinguishes the people who actually take advantage of that quickest way to build wealth and everybody else.
1: I, I suppose this comes back to my failure to build Funding Lab as a franchise, yep. which is, as you said, you know, most people are, are looking for a kind of like a done-for-you solution and are not uh, 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 just not... I don't know whether they're able to, willing to go out and make things happen themselves. And I, and I and I don't know why that is because because I am somebody who likes making things happen themselves. Yep. Then I I, I find it difficult to understand that other mindsets. So I'm I'm you know what I'm I'm probably the wrong person to ask, Corey, to to be honest, because for me, for me, it for me this is just playing a game, right? This is you know this, this is like. Yeah, you know, I, I love playing Monopoly with my daughter. For example, it's just like grown-up Monopoly, really, isn't it? It's just looking at growing wealth, having a having a strategy, and and it's a game. It's it's a game that we play over time. I, I, for me, it's my life. It's one of the sort of three main parts of my life that I would never ever give up. And, and you know, and and I kind of I look at people who are looking forward to retirement, and I just don't understand that at all. You know, I I, I I want to be cycling into Sydney in 25 years' time, but I'd still like to be doing deals at that time as well. I don't, I don't want to be giving that up.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's,
1: it's a love of the chase, a love of the game.
0: See, see it's interesting because it, it, on the one hand, you said to me, maybe I'm not the guy to ask because I don't understand those people, but then you you actually gave the contrast, right, of who you are, and I think that was very informative of you know of, of the difference, right? Right. I mean, you know, the, the that, that want to be in the game, that even looking at a game, the you know, the chase, the, the 25 year view, or you know, all, all of that stuff that you talked about, I think is you know, a lot of what is that difference in mindset, you know, of a deal maker. And and it's and it's funny, I didn't want like I appreciate you sort of going through that analysis in real time because you know what happens with many, many people who are great at what they do, whatever it is, whether it's deals, whether they're woodworkers and master craftsmen, whatever it is, right? Like, I love this term. There's a term that I got introduced many, many years ago from Bob Proctor, where he used to talk about unconscious competence, right? Like, you talk to somebody who's great at something, but they can't really explain how or why or that they do it because it's just they do it. It's just what they do, right? It's who they are. There's some natural abilities, some things that have been learned and, and honed and added to that. and And it's often hard for those of us who have, that kind of you know i'll I'll call it mastery or even just le- high level skill in it to really break it down and understand what it is that that makes us different and then it makes us we have trouble understanding people who aren't like that sometimes and it yeah you know, it's a challenge
1: yeah yeah i mean over here you, you're probably aware that soccer you call it soccer we call it football yeah, football yeah. is it's like a religion yeah and you know the you know the the the, the the players, and the, this is a big money game, huge, you know, players earning tens of millions of pounds in salary and a huge transfer fees. But the guys managing these clubs, the managers, generally speaking, they're all retired footballers, Yeah. but the managers weren't great footballers. They were okay, but really great footballers don't make great managers uh, really- because, because they kind of don't understand how... You know, they don't understand why they were that great, you know, whereas the guys that struggled and and, and, and kind of got through it and probably weren't great players often become phenomenal managers.
0: Right. Right. Because they had to focus much more on what they did right, what they did yeah. wrong, what they can learn, what they can, you know, yeah. whereas, yeah, yeah, right. Your superstars don't. Yeah. It's a perfect analogy, right? Because those folks to the unconscious confidence, they're, they're they, you know, they're, they're just so gifted and whatever. They just go out and do what they do. You know, good stuff. Well listen, we before I get to my final two questions because we are coming to the end here, is there anything else about what you do or the market in general you know or whatever that you you know anything you want to talk about as a last topic before we uh, ask you my final two questions
1: No, not specifically. I think that you know for sure, we're entering a very interesting time right now and as I've, I've mentioned, you know even smaller businesses like the ones that I've owned and operated are hugely impacted by world events and world events have never been changing at such a rate as as they are now for so many different reasons you know a lot of them negative and I think that you know it's more important now than ever to be Open to change, to to look to, to to be as flexible as possible, and and to, you know, to to look to the future positively, and and not not to be not to be afraid of all of that. So I, th- I think you know that that's just like the biggest thing, and you know, not not to be too too invested in the past, and, and to be looking forward all the time. So yeah, I, I'm excited, and uh, I think 2023 is going to be a phenomenal year for for, for me and for, for the various business interests that I have. But generally speaking, I think it's gonna be quite tough for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, listen, I, I think uh, I think that's another example of the mindset of a deal maker, right? Because those of us who and an entrepreneur and whatever, right? because we, you know, we do keep this optimism. And also though, we know that in challenging times and changing times and disruptive times, that actually creates a lot of opportunity as well. Well, listen, Stephen, thank you so much. It's great. Before we get to my final question, just give people whatever contact information, website, anything you want to give so people can find out more about what you do.
1: Uh, yeah. So the website is funding in fundingna So that's where the, sort of the, the, the business lives. And if you want to contact me directly, then I'm on LinkedIn, Stephen Sachs. S-A-C-K-S. So yeah, I'm happy to connect with people and sort of, sort of chat and, and see whether we can offer any value.
0: Awesome. So Stephen, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means freedom from all people around the world, from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a boss. So it's a broad range for me. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business?
1: Freedom. Yeah. Like, as you say, I, I've also been in business all my life I've never had a boss I the, the, the greatest value of my life actually is probably family actually mm-hmm. I would say but of course without freedom then everything else kind of doesn't really work at all sure. yeah so freedom freedom for me is obviously get bit, you know every morning I get up and I decide what am I going to do today and each day's a little bit different. They, they actually, they will start, but they're somewhat the same with uh, getting down the gym or getting on my, on my bike. But then, uh, you know, I, I literally make it up as I go along, and that—that's—that's that's freedom, right? Every night, I kind of uh, as I get get into bed, I think, wow, you know, wh- 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 whether it was good or whether it was bad. It, it, if it was good, it was my good, and if it was bad, then it was my bad, <laughs> and then I can learn for the next day.
0: Yeah, love it, Stephen Sachs. Thanks for being such a great guest on the Old Quest podcast. All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to wwwcorycupfercom slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Cupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.